The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most anything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. I'm excited today. Now, why am I excited? We're talking about stack effect. What stack effect people say? We're talking about building personalization, right? So it's something people don't talk about. It's something pretty fundamental. Just about most buildings get this wrong at high rise. So this is why our guest is on. Yeah. And today's guest is a principal and senior consultant with RWDI and supports their design teams with Hard science uh, that's necessary to make buildings uh, safer, more energy efficient, more comfortable, and more inspiring. And uh, some projects that he's worked on, just to put some perspective on this, is he's uh, worked on the modification of the matter. master plan of Masdar, the king of Abdullah, University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, Dulles International Airport in uh, Washington, D.C., and we've all flown through there many, many times. And before uh, that, uh, he was a senior uh, researcher for Stantec, uh, working on ventilation strategies for large processes, uh, steel production, which would be kind of interesting, in automobile assembly, uh, using analytical and uh, CFD modeling tools. So welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Duncan Phillips. Thank you very much. Hi, gents. How are you both doing? Doing great. Duncan, you jumped into engineering uh, school at the University of Waterloo, one of Canada's most well-known, one of the most well-known engineering schools around the world, actually, with both the feet, really, started in 1983 and stayed there and worked your way through the PhD program for a in while. 1997. What, you just said, hey, I got nothing to do for the next eight or nine years? And, and no, it's, uh, it's all good <laughs> Tell us a story. All good reasons to be there. So when I was just before I got to university, I went through the Quebec system where we have SEJA, and I had a couple of really good professors who talked just in a language of physics that just clicked with me. It made sense. They were engaging. And so I kind of, at that point, was finishing off science and sort of went, well, okay, this engineering stuff sounds cool. Got accepted to the University of Waterloo. Not quite sure I'd get accepted now, but I got accepted to the University of Waterloo back then <laughs> and had had some great professors there. And there was there was a, one in particular I remember. I don't think he particularly liked me, but I liked the way in which he presented the material. And he was a fluids professor. And so what ended up happening was I got engaged in the way in which he presented it. And I now, when I talk to other students or I talk to students today about my career path, I just say I'm a fluids guy. And it's because of this one professor and the way in which he sort of packaged the information and and helped us learn it. It was great. So then after that, I'm not sure whether or not I thought the economy was going down or I was really enjoying this learning stuff. So I decided to do my master's. And I, I had a professor there who took me on, a different different fellow, but took me on. And we had a really cool project. And what we were looking at was effectively contaminant transport in a, in a room like this. doesn't really matter what it looks like, but how do you measure it and model it and discuss it? And there's, yes, you could do CFD, but people weren't doing the measurement side. And we had this idea about how we were going to be measure, able to measure and just effectively watch airflow 
using concentrations. And so I did my master's and we sort of got some cool stuff and then decided to do a PhD. When I'd finished my PhD, which I got to say is a privilege apart from everything else, right? You, you get a chance to sit down and learn stuff you really want to learn. I then went to Stantec and that's where sort of the idea of applying this mixing in rooms to spaces where people are just took off. So now in my role at RWDI, I'm involved in trying to help people understand how a contaminant moves and impacts people. And those contaminants may be something you think about in terms of a dust or a gaseous contaminant, or even these days in the days of COVID, I've spent a lot of time thinking through and trying to help people on that. But heat is a contaminant when you want it cooler, right? So how do you manage heat? So that's how all that starts to play out. And so it, you know, wrapping it full circle out, and when we sort of start talking about stack effect, stack effect is one of those things that's driven by a temperature difference. And I got there through this path of liking fluids and liking mixing and liking how things impact people. And now I arrive at a place where if someone's complaining about the building elevator not working or it's too whistling too loudly, that's stack effect. And that's exactly what I like doing. <laughs> that's cool. I don't think, you know, most people in society really understand or appreciate the integration that occurs between architectural design and closure design, interior finishes, and particulars as those materials get assembled. And the higher up you go, the greater the driving forces. And it could be shortwave radiation, it could be temperature, it could be whatever, whatever the element is. And now with COVID particular, we are starting to see people question why air quality is important, for example. Yeah. And, you know, we start talking to them about shortwave radiation and solar heat gain coefficients and synthetic carpets. And if you want something to break down like synthetics and do a souffle of hydrocarbons, yeah. right? Yeah. And so you can do all the filtration you like for particles, but you still haven't solved the hydrocarbon issues in the space, which are the odors and the things that cause people respiratory problems, right? That's right. And that's a whole nother rabbit worm, right? Because people are being advised by some manufacturers to release things into the air to make it feel or smell fresher, releasing something into a room to deal with something else in the room really isn't a good way of solving an air quality issue. Right. Yeah. Um, right? Candles and incense, right? Febreze. Yeah. Covering a smell with a smell never works, right? Never. Well, it might work as a temporary thing, but you don't know what your new smell is actually doing within the room. So if you sort of release ions into a room with VOCs, you get something else when the two of those mix together. And when it's not clear what the, uh, the health impacts of some of those really is. You're better off passing the air through a charcoal filter and just stripping out the nasty stuff you want to get rid of. It was kind of like trying to paint over a big hole in the wall. Eventually, that big hole is going to come back and it may actually be bigger while you've not been able to see it. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens when you stuff something into a room to try and cover up some odor or some other issue in there. Yeah, there's so much, obviously, <laughs> we're going to have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But why, let me, as a question for you. I mean, as engineers and as scientists, we have an eye for the geometry around us and we see the forms and we see the glass and we know people that are buying, you know, these multi-million dollar condominiums and they have no second thoughts about exposing their heirlooms, artifacts, collectibles to these damage functions. And yet those same people will spend hours inside of museums and not put the two and two together that, you know, museum curators don't expose heirlooms, artifacts and collectibles to direct sunlight and that things are controlled for that very reason. Why do people not have that connection? 
that's a really good question. I think there may be a bit of a philosophy in there too, right? What I do for my own stuff or that piece of art that sits on my wall, it's not being exposed to damage the way that other person's art is exposed to damage on the wall, right? It's the do as I say, not as I do. So maybe you expect to go into a museum and you see that nice piece of art that's protected by a, a case. Or even at one point, we were even looking at wash of perfectly clean air, but it had been filtered several times at the right temperatures, the right humidity. You can protect a piece of art by passing something across it. I think uh, I saw an article once on Michelangelo's David. The statue is protected by an air shower. Okay. People sort of see that, but don't really apply that to what they've got in their own space. Right. I once had the chance to work on the Star-Spangled Banner, the actual flag that's in the U.S. National Anthem, that flag exists at a museum in the United States in Washington, D.C., touching in the Smithsonian. And that flag is so fragile, if you sneeze, you have destroyed some history. Right. It just like that. But what ends up happening there is the fibers, when you have humidity changes, temperature changes, sort of rub against each other. And that's why it's so fragile, is because of all this rubbing over time. And the flag, in the end, is precious piece of history worthy of protection. But now you go and take that to your own tapestry that you have on the wall. You don't seem to care the fibers of goodness, <laughs> right? It, we just don't think about it. Eventually, your own tapestry on the wall is going to be so fragile, you sneeze on it, some of it's gone. Yeah. Was it Betsy Ross that sold the first flag from Philadelphia? The name is familiar. I confess you're sort of pushing some of my, my U.S. history mm-hmm. a little bit. But yes, the name is familiar. I think she did have something to do with it. You're showing off a bit there, Rob. <laughs> well, it was only by accident because I was supposed to be in Philadelphia for a conference. And of course, I got I was one of the trips from hell. And anyways, the, the company that had sponsored me to travel down there let me their driver for the day. And I oh, toured sorry. Philadelphia. It was fabulous. I mean, the guy grew up there. And so we saw both the good side and the bad side. But he knew the history there. And yeah, anyways, I don't want to fill this interview up with that talk. But Adam, you had... So just remember, the Star Spangled Banner is about British rockets, the best rockets. <laughs> anyway, um, we sort of went down a, a hole of uh, sort of unintended consequences. I want to come back to that and put a pin in that. But just to get to basics, right, Duncan's an expert on sort of like tool building design, stack effects is one of the sort of like subjects that sits under that. But the problem as I've got older, I've understand all life, particularly work life in buildings, is about consequences, incentives and disincentives, right? And disincentives are about consequences. And the problem with getting HVAC design, uh, building pressurization design wrong, the consequences are super low. No one loses their engineering license or gets sued for having the building pressurization wrong, right? So just basic building pressurization. I would say, let me be generous, five out of 10 buildings are not pressurized properly at any moment in time due to various factors, bad design, bad maintenance, bad operation, right? Now, on a low rise, the consequences are more filters, you know, more energy, bad experience. But when you go to a high rise and then you have staircase pressurization and stack effect is an issue or just going up and down the elevators, you know, things start becoming a bit more serious and the consequences can be serious, right? So the extreme consequences, there's a fire event, and for whatever reason, the staircase pressurization doesn't operate, people can't in, can't get out, or it doesn't pressurize. And ultimately, someone could die or get badly hurt, right? The consequences there are horrendous. So I just don't understand why this subject, like building pressurization, and particularly with the vast number of high-rise buildings going on now, is just not a more important discussed subject. Well, and there's even layers on that, because some of the 
knowledge that people have about building design for taller buildings. So let's, let's sort of define that there's different types of tall buildings. And, and yeah. some organizations define a tall building as more than four stories. Well, in my mind, if you can walk up it in, in less than two minutes, it's not a tall building. Tall building, 17, 20 stories. At that point, legs start to feel it. That we start to qualify as a tall building. But most of the knowledge we have is based upon buildings that are sort of on average 20 to 30 stories. And a lot of the codes are written to sort of basically say, well, it seemed to work for that height. And now we're just going to treat a 60-story building as 230s and a 90-story building as 330s. And it doesn't work like that. Um, Because what ends up happening is the forces on a 30-story building are actually not that great. But when you take it up to 90, they can be enormous to the point where you cannot open a door, as you said, Adam. What ends up happening is the pressures inside the building that are driven exclusively by stack effect, and we should probably describe that for people in a moment, are strong enough that it can just anchor the door closed. I will say that I actually think that there are, maybe there's not so much litigation and lawsuits over building pressurization. And I think that's because a lot of times when there is a problem, it's demonstrated to be through design, it gets resolved out of court. And I know of a couple of cases that I've worked on in the last couple of years where there has been a resolution solved outside of court. Once you described it, some hard physics was applied to the problem. We understood what the issues were. People came to understand how the circumstances got set up and who was responsible for fixing the solution. So right. fixing the solution means you got to pay some money. And anytime you're fixing stack effect after the building's built, that's always expensive. So if we take a step back for a moment, the easiest way to think of stack effect is that I've got a tall building and it's warm. So we're going to talk about cold climate for a moment. We'll flip around and talk about a hot climate. But for a cold climate, I got a tall building and it's warm. That means the density of the air is a certain density. So it's a certain weight in the entire height of the building of air. If you stacked all the weight of all that air on top of itself, you'd end up with a number here and you can weigh it. Now let's go outside. And outside, the air is colder. It's more dense. It's actually heavier. And so if you stick a scale underneath this weight of air, what ends up happening is this stuff is heavier outside than it is inside. And so if you now connect this heavy air outside with this not so heavy air inside, what ends up happening is that the air wants to slip through and go into that door. And so what ends up happening is conservation of mass. We can't have air going into a building forever. So air leaves the top of the building. So that's what ends up actually happening. So stack effect, people think of it as a buoyancy driven issue. They're not denying that hot air goes up, but it's actually not buoyancy. It's more about the height and the weight of the air outside and the height of the weight of the air inside and how they connect to the front of the door. And so air wants to slip from outside and go inside, and then it has to come out top again. So that's actually what stack effect is. Displacement. About, well, what are all the ways it could get up a building? It can go up elevator shafts. It can go up stairwells. It can go up risers where we put ducts and piping and internet cables and all the other stuff. That's why we get those whooshes of air and that whistling and humming in buildings is because that air is squeaking its way through cracks to get back up. It wants to go to the top of the building. I was taught to visualize this as like a YouTube, you know, like an old YouTube manometer. Yeah. yeah. Where it's just doing this all the time. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. That's one way of seeing it. And, you know, if I filled up a YouTube, if I took that YouTube and I sort of stuck water in half of it and I could somehow prevent the water from slipping around, what would end up happening is we'd end up having the extra weight of the water here. It just wants to slip into the other part of the tube. Yes. That's an, exactly another way of thinking about it. People that are listening, the new or the students that are going to be graduating soon and maybe entering into the engineering field, I mean, the consequences of some of this stuff are fire exits get blocked simply because of the pressure. People cannot get out. I used I have two slides in one of my presentations on indoor air quality, and one of them is at the bottom of a it's a fourth level parkade in a 30 
four-story building. And the pressure differential is so great that it took, and I'm not exactly a small guy, and it took all my power just to open the door. If you were disabled or in a wheelchair or anything like that, you're screwed. You're done. And the flow of air was from the parkade into the elevator shaft. Well, you know, you think about what's in a parkade in terms of toxicants, right? That ends up in the elevator shaft. Well, so then we get into the building. And again, so people need to understand the power of this stuff. We went up halfway up the building. I think it was the 20th floor or something like that. And where's that air going, right? And you hear the whistling underneath people's doors and you enter the suite. No fans are on, right? So there's no exhaust, kitchen exhaust fans are on, no bathroom fans are on, no laundry vents are on, but you see this streaking at the grills on the balconies outside. And what's happening is the air is entering from the parkade, going up the elevator shaft, exiting into the hallways, going underneath the door, pressurizing the unit, and then forcing the air out through the weakest points, which is the ducts. No fans, right? And this is the stuff that happens. And of course, the concern that we have today, and there's been a couple of cases, has to do with transmission of viruses, right? Yep. And so sidebar discussion here, uh, Duncan. That's a whole other path because there are requirements on what you are ideally allowed or not supposed to do in a building in terms of ventilation about allowing air from a corridor to go into a unit and whether or not the unit should be self-sufficient. That's a whole other can of worms. So, so let's just put this into numbers for people. So people go, oh, this stack effect thing, that can't really be that strong. Well, you know, in a sort of a, let's say a 70-story building, the stack effect on a cold day, and then let's, you could pick sort of a Toronto weather or Chicago weather or somewhere in the sort of Calgary, anywhere sort of along that, well, let's say the U.S.-Canadian border, we're going to see temperatures somewhere around minus 18 degrees Celsius, which is zero Fahrenheit-ish. And the sorts of pressure you get in a 70-story building can be on the order of just driven by stack effect half an inch. And so to put that in perspective, what that means on a door is if I try to open a standard door and try and literally pull it open, the force that I have to pull the door handle with is associated with that pressure. And simple numbers says that we exceed the recommended limit. Well, actually, it's not even a recommended limit. We exceed the limit that's established by governing bodies of 30 pounds. If it takes more than 30 pounds to open a door, you've exceeded the threshold that's allowed. It doesn't take much in terms of stack effect to blow away that limit easily. Yeah. So I've been involved in a building where we were so doing some diagnosis work, and it took two of us to close a door. And the pressure on that door was 200 pascals, and it was a big door, so a huge door. It took two of us to close it, and even then, we had our hands on the door frame. It was not just like a little, ah, oh, we're going to pull it. It was hard work to close it. The other fellow had one of those suction cups hooked up to the glass so he could yank on the glass because I was grabbing hold of the handle full time. Wow. That was nuts. Absolutely wow. nuts. If there was a fire under that colder condition, someone would have struggled to leave that space. Yeah. Fundamentally, this is one of the things that blows my mind. I mean, I've been in the building environment sector for nearly 40 years now. And the fact that life safety, this is a life safety system we're talking about, right? This is getting people out in one piece, not getting burnt or smoke inhalation. And I've tested numerous systems like this in the last 40 years, and not one of them has worked properly first time. Not a single one. It's taken like adjustments, fixes, sticky tape, WD-40 spray, you know, everything had to be thrown at these things to make them work. Yeah, it does. And and when you are commissioning, and and you've seen it, right, because a commissioning agent, you get to see all sorts of different kinds of systems. We actually recommend that the building can be commissioned in summer 
and winter because the settings are going to be totally different. Yeah, great idea. Um, you should yeah. run the building totally different. If you can't manage stack effect well in the winter, then it's going to be a miserable existence for people who live in that building in the winter. And yeah. I do know mechanical engineers who are very careful to say stack effect is best controlled through architecture. <laughs> While the architects will say stack effect is best controlled through the mechanical system. And then the elevator team will say, well, it always appears at the elevators, but it's got nothing to do with the elevators. So it's almost like this whole stack effect thing is, well, I don't want to deal with it. I don't know. No one wants to deal with it, but it's going to be there because the building's there. So everybody needs to jump onto the team bandwagon and start figuring out how to deal with it. But the elevator guy is saying it's not an elevator issue. It just shows up at the elevator. And the architect saying, well, it's a mechanical issue. And the mechanical guy is saying it's the architect. That's everybody sort of giving up. So one way to get rid of it in elevators is have the elevators as an exterior device, right? That's right. It is. My grandmother's walk-up flat, she lived in London, had an exterior elevator. You solved the problem. But you can put that elevator inside the building. You just need to make it at the same temperature as outside. So remember, I sort of said, yes. yeah. the weight of the air outside is different from the weight of the air inside the elevator shaft. Well, if you make the weight of the air in the elevator shaft the same, then there's no driving force. But you then have all the other risers. So remember, we talked about the risers yeah. from the H. Right? So all the other stuff gets stairwell. So you have to sort of take a holistic view of it. And you can't just say, ta-da, we'll make all the elevators the same temperatures outside. We're done. You're actually not, because now you've set up different stack effects. So we sometimes describe stack effect as sort of like that little kid who's sort of sticking his finger in the dam to try and stop the thing from leaking. And if you get the big hole in the dam, and then you sort of, another one will show up. And so you got to stick your finger in that one. And that's the way stack effect works. So we're back to, if you want to design stack effect away, you need a more holistic full building approach. I've seen people go and seal a door up. Okay, we're going to seal this door really well. And so the stack effect has just basically, it's like whack-a-mole. It's gone over there now. It's yeah, in that's the thing. It's a moving right. target, right? <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. So are we being more proactive in designs now than we were in the past? I remember sitting in conversations with Steve Rook and Straub, and they were talking a lot about stack effect and compartmentalization was the solution. But are we seeing architects and engineers apply these principles to reduce the effect of stack effect? It's getting better. There's, there's a lot more architects who would like to have the owners or the developers of a building bring a stack effect consultant on board right at the beginning to start talking about it because it will impact the building. And whether or not that's through something as simple as the elevators too are literally too noisy, and the noise being generated as air is passing through the elevator cracks exceeds yeah. the indoor recommended noise limits. People can't sleep because of the noise in the elevators. That that's one aspect. Another aspect is just the energy demand. Because you've got this air that wants to race in the bottom of the building, zip up the top, come up top, we're losing energy. There's an enormous energy impact. I was involved in one building where the developer designed or had a building designed. The bottom was a hotel and the top was condos. And the developer kept the hotel at the bottom. They sold off the condo. They handed over the condo corporal. The condos are owned individually by the occupants or whomever. But they kept the bottom. And they had a stack effect issue. And they were floored when we sort of let them know that, well, yeah, you've got a stack effect problem. Part of the issue is the bottom of the building, but also the rest of the top of the building. And you're paying to heat the air that everybody else is getting. The developer at the bottom of the building was paying for all of the energy and yeah. all that stack effect. They were floored. They'd never even thought about it. Yeah. And not a design flaw, it's a lack of attention to the issue. Yeah, everyone was designing their little piece of the building. No one was joining it together, right? That's right. Yeah. You've got to approach it from a holistic perspective, right? You've got to sort of see all the holes in the dam and then sort of go, okay, which are the most important holes and which are the ones I won't be able to solve? 
how do I have a backup plan for the rest of those holes? Yeah, you've got to approach it from a stepping back and going out. Yeah, one of my theories is, I mean, a lot of high-rise is residential, and residential, unfortunately, is the bottom of the food chain in property development, and it's the most uh, rule-of-thumb, copy-paste design out there, right? And that's a consequence of that approach. I mean, the integrated design process is conceived to deal with these problems, right? But in 40 years, I think I've worked on two proper integrated design process jobs in my life, you know? It is, but you you sort of said that Resi is the lowest in the pecking order in terms of thoughtful design. The flip side is that some high-value residents where people are paying tens of thousands of dollars in rent per month or several tens of millions of dollars for the penthouse at the top, those buildings are actually worth a fair amount. They're actually good investment for developer. However, what ends up happening there is that the perception is, well, everybody in this building wants to see a transparent building. I want to be able to walk into my lobby and not have to touch a door and walk up to the elevator and it it magically opens for me. Well, that's fine, but you're going to have a brutal stack effect problem. We've seen some of these high value resis where the doors are basically two sheets of glass that come together but they don't really. There's sort of a good half inch or a centimeter in between. There's a gap. And air is just racing through that. I mean, it, the only benefit to that is if you sort of took a wind turbine, you stuck a wind turbine behind <laughs> it to capture some energy from it. Right? That's the only thing you got going for you there. Whereas if you put a proper door there, one that actually closes and seals, you'd actually have a better chance of managing stack effect. I'm fascinated by that uh, building in New York where the, um, I think you guys were there. So I'll be careful what I say here. The uh, Slender Condo, uh, 432 Park, New York City. So it's one of these super slender condos aimed at, you've got to be a billionaire to have the studio on the low floor, right, to be in this building. And I've been watching it, and what I see is that it's a high-end condo for super wealthy, high-net-worth people, and they've approached it in the usual, like, value engineering, leave-no-corner, uncut way. And the result is something like, People who are used to having everything their own way are moving in. It's creaking. It's noisy. There's this, there's that. And the lawsuits are going to be gargantuan on this. I can't speak to that building specifically. I haven't got a a good enough eye into it to be able to be specific. But I have seen the same articles that you've seen. And it does seem like there's some stuff in the background going on that we don't see. As you say, nine out of ten Lawsuits in property are settled on the court steps at the last minute, right? It's a Mexican standoff and right at the last minute, a handshake's done. It's over, right? But I have this vision of the people on the roof going, lawyers assemble and the most highly paid lawyers in New York are circling around them going, don't worry, I'm going to fix this for you. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's what lawyers should do is start looking where the next tall building is going to be. In. Yeah, but you're uh, right. See, that's a great insight there, right? So in my mind, resi, and this is a British thing, is always the bottom of the food chain. But when you're building residential for billionaires, it's a different high-risk game, right? It's a high-stakes game at that point. Yeah, it is. People have expectations, but I think another way of seeing it is that people who are buying into that kind of building have the money and the wherewithal to do something about it if they're not happy. Yes, absolutely. Whereas the, well, I'm not sure what the right word is here, the average condominium owner who hasn't spent tens of millions of dollars, who maybe, still a large number, spent half a million dollars on a condominium, isn't in the same position to be able to sort of lawyer up, if you'll forgive the term, and then and then go after someone. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Condo Act in Canada is basically legalized consumer abuse, man. I would never do that. My, yeah. You know, my experience, having worked with some wealthy clients, is that most of them, even though they have lawyers on retainer, would prefer to have spent the money up front and got something that worked yeah. uh, rather than having to deal with yeah. conflict afterwards. 
you know, I think of the times that in meetings, job site meetings, and the owner was there and he's going, well, why did you just say it was going to be this amount? We would have paid it. Now we're having to deal with it after the fact. Like they hate that shit, you know? A lot of them are, you know, they're they're pretty sharp and they're well aware of the value of money, but also well aware of their time. And lots of them will stand up and say, look, my time was worth a lot more than the amount of money to fix how did we would have paid this at the upfront rather than mm-hmm. to deal with it in the back end. But also what's interesting is that we've seen a lot of wealthy people who will put their faith in the developer and the builder not question anything, and they get the same quality of construction as somebody who's spending yeah, that's like, half a million dollars when they're spending 10 millions of dollars on a property. Putting your arm in a lion's mouth, right? You're going to get your arm bitten off. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. But there is a presupposition if you're a master of the universe hedge fund guy paying like $50 million for a condo, there is a presupposition, there's an assumption in your brain that someone like Duncan has already looked at that job right, and solved all these problems. It doesn't go through your mind that you haven't had the best design team possible looking at it, does it? <laughs> right, yeah. If you're paying $50 million for a condo. Yep. Although there are some developers who sort of tend to get a bit of a reputation as taking more shortcuts. I think you sort of said it a little while ago, Adam, that the VE bandsaw comes out and, oh, and ends God, up turning yeah. into a chainsaw. <laughs> um, right? So we're no longer doing precise precision cuts. It's more, yeah. more of a hack job. And there are some developers who sort of get a reputation of being that, yeah, they get the building up, but it's not really done in a manner that's going to leave a quality product at the end. Let's all be clear. Value engineering is Latin for no corner left uncut, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not actually a form of engineering. That's slightly (laughs) offensive, if quite honest. It is, actually. It's very offensive. It's a slash and burn tactic. Absolutely, right? Yeah, if it really was engineering, we'd sort of took, okay, the best way of doing the value engineering is to say, okay, well, here's design one. You don't like it because it's too expensive. Tell me how much you want to pay. Yeah. Design the building for that. But you can't take a building where you've put all this thought into what, how the ducts are going to come together, where the structure is going to go, what kind of doors you're going to put on, how the doorknobs are going to be. You can't take all that thoughtful design and then start stripping out bits and pieces because you don't like that because it's expensive because the whole thing came together holistically. So we've seen this as well. So the holistic design has resulted in certain things going into the building where we've put a better quality energy recovery unit into the apartments. We've put a slightly different door in place, all these different strategies. And then so someone comes along and goes, well, we don't need a, an ERV that's that good. We'll put this one in. We don't need the seals on the doors to be that good. We'll put this one in. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is all those little things that come out that collectively, maybe if one went, it'd be okay. But because they all go, them on, right? all of a sudden, it gets to be a lot worse. And, and so the whole idea of value engineering is actually turn off the engineering and what can we do to a building to reduce its cost while yeah. still making it look like it was the way it was. You're better off saying, I only want to spend $100 million, get it designed so that we can construct it for $100 million. And if you tell me that I can't have a, a 50-story building, it can only be 40 stories for that price. At least let's make it work well at 40 stories, and I can yep. charge the right amount of money to make that project viable. But going up to 50 just because I can get an extra 10 stories and then tacking a whole bunch of stuff out isn't really... Yeah, it's not really. <laughs> yeah that reminds me of a project that we had, and we worked the owner hand-in-hand, hand, actually, throughout the whole design project, including the uh, the enclosure itself and the architecture. And we did that because we wanted to simplify the mechanical system. And after the first design, which was approved, stamp drawings, we had, I think our design fluid temperature at design conditions here in Calgary was like 100 degrees supply temperature, so 80 return. So, and it was beautiful. Like it was a multi-HTU system. We had 
fan coils, we had radiant, we had makeup air units, but everything was working on a one single temperature, right? So we got rid of mixing valves and pumps and blah, blah, yeah. blah. But we were only able to do that because the owner agreed to modify the enclosure. So we reduced the window to wall ratios. We had exterior insulation on the project. We got the loads down. We changed the flooring to more conductive flooring. So we didn't have to have these high temperature profiles. And it was beautiful until I went out on a site inspection and they'd left. Well, they decided to omit the exterior insulation and my jaw dropped. I said, are you kidding me? Like, do you realize the math and the complexity that went into making those insulated decisions? And um, so we went to the owner. I said, I don't know what happened here, but here's the consequences. And it became a redesign. We had to redesign the entire building, the entire mechanical system, added another six months onto the project. So here's the lesson to those that are listening, the students that are coming out of school, or even the young engineers, practitioners, is that when you put all your heart and soul into a design, find a way to lock that door <laughs> if you can, because somebody will try to value out somewhere, somehow. They'll try to mess with it, and it'll be a headache for you. Yeah, or it's a note on a drawing. <laughs> hey. a little, little bubble, point to this. You remove this at your own risk, right? So if take this out, the building is stuffed. That may be something that needs to happen a little bit more and more. And at least at that point, someone maybe I should talk to the original engineers or the design team about that because that particular experience is on the construction side. The construction team gets to make alterations to the design. And yeah, stripping the insulation out, that's an alteration. I've got a door there. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's not the same door, but it is a door there. People can go in and out of the door. It's not doing the same thing, but it's still a door. A building is a system of systems, right? And the outer skin, the facade, is system number one. And the systems inside basically offset how good or bad that is. When I was in property development, the things I used to spend 80% of my time talking about and worrying about were price of concrete, price of steel, price of facades, price of elevators, because those are the four big numbers in your cost plan. That's where all the eyes are. So there's always someone who goes, oh, I've got the facade price down to blah, 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 right? That's great. And he's a hero for a couple of months until... It gets built and it doesn't work per your story, Robert, right? Yeah. But engineers, I think one of the problems when you're in a design team and like the mechanical electrical engineers there, they're not very vocal or good at selling what their concepts or their design, right? Or piping up when a bad decision is about to be made. So, you know, if you're in that room and someone's talking about knocking the facade cost down by 3% by going to a different U value here, then the mechanical engineer, like a Peter Runge type person, has got to jump and say, that's great. Knock yourself out. But just so you know, the consequences are this, 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 and this, right? And someone's yep. got to be able to say that. Now, to be fair, some architects don't let you do that. So they are villains, by the way. Anyone listening? Yeah, we can say names. Genie Gang. <laughs> the Aqua Tower in Chicago. I never forget that. I mean, because I was in Chicago several times. I had nothing to do with that project. But I remember I was on the fourth floor and they were pouring. And I'm looking at the wonky wave forms that were being used. And I'm and I'm thinking, oh, my God, like there's the thermal bridging in here. It's just going to be horrendous, right? And then I got back into Chicago, and they're up at actually about the 20th floor. Same shit. You know, he's just taller, right? And I think when they got to like the 28th or the 30th floor, they were already getting awards, you know? Like the awards were coming out, best sustainable design and best architectural design. And I'm reading this shit, and I'm going, wait, just wait, just wait, right? Tick, 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 tick. And just watching the clock, right? And first winter that hit, 
And I don't remember who went down there and they took two photographs, same facade face. One was with the thermographic image, one was just the regular image. <laughs> and it was a disaster. The thermal bridging that went on in that building was horrific. But they won a lot of awards. <laughs> but, <laughs> it would be an interesting exercise for a student yeah. anywhere you really to actually go and have a look at the maths of I got a facade, and we can assume some performance characteristics of a facade, and then I've got an unbroken balcony. And just to sort of compare the relative amounts of heat that's being lost from what people describe, as you just described, Rob, is something might, that might behave like a fin versus a piece of facade that's a piece of glass. And then start to change this facade, make it have a window-to-wall ratio that's something a little bit more practical, put yeah. some insulation in it, and just see, sort of see when, at what point, this fin ends up becoming the dominant force versus the piece of glass that was there. Right. All glass towers are pretty to look at, but no one ever uses the entire glass. You look at some of the condos that are being designed today, your glass from floor to ceiling, it looks great when you walk in to buy it, but by the time you put your furniture in place, yeah, yeah. you don't actually need a good third of the glass that's in there. That's just yeah. the starters, right? And I can remember being involved in a design of a building. It was in the Middle East, and the architect wanted to put circles. They want the whole building covered in circles. And that was going to be the facade. You're going to have each of the circles is going to be the glass. And we sort of started to explore that. Well, what are we going to do here about this? I mean, how are we going to make this work and give it a sustainability story and give you the form that you want? And in the end, it was about, well, each of these circles has a function. The circle that's at my chest height, that's vision glass. That's the, I should have a view through that circle. That should be the biggest one. The circle that's up above my head, that's doing nothing for view. But if I could use that for daylighting, and so be able to stream daylighting into the back of the space, that's actually making that circle have value. Mm -hmm. And then the circle at the ground, the only way that circle at the ground is going to do anything is if I could somehow arrange it so that the view through it allows me to see something going on on the ground as I approach the wall. But otherwise, it's pointless. Yeah. So we ended up actually coming up with a reason for every single one of the circles that was there because we're now still saying, okay, we've got vision glasses, people got a view up there, we're going to daylighting, and, and the whole thing could work. But floor to ceiling, and we got a window to wall ratio. That's the other thing. We got a window to wall ratio that made sense. But just floor to ceiling glass, nah, that doesn't work. Question for you, Doug. Why do we see that? Like, I mean, we know this stuff. <laughs> we've, we've known this stuff for a long, long time. And yet you could drive downtown Calgary or any pick a city anywhere really where there's construction going on. And we see the same techniques, the same window to wall ratios, the same methodologies. And we know just from the, when we start to see the shit go up, that it's going to be a problem. Why do we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and again it, when we it, know better? It's quick and easy. I think mean, that's probably the easiest way of, of doing it. It's something where you can build the um, the facade elements off-site. You bring it to the site, you can put it up fairly quickly. And that's why it tends to be all, all glass. It also looks good, right? But there, if you actually start thinking about it, it's sort of someone is listening to this podcast and thinks to themselves, I like those kind of condos. Here's the thing to think about. When the lights go out in your building, and lights always go out in the building, there will always be an opportunity for lights to go out, or the air conditioning fails. The fact that you've got floor-to-ceiling glass may actually have a crippling impact on your enjoyment of your unit because there's no ability for you to store heat in the winter or store cool in the summer because it's just going to get sucked out through that glass. Yeah. There was a building uh, I'm aware of that was designed using passive house techniques. And so passive house has a whole bunch of requirements, among them a window-to-wall ratio and really good insulation. And the heating system actually failed in this building. And no one noticed for days. <laughs> yeah. In the middle of winter, yep. that's a yep. building that you want to live in, right? Yeah. My daughter's condominium that she's staying in downtown Toronto, the air conditioning failed. It was floor-ceiling glass. 
there was no respite. And it was a good thing it happened during a cooler part of the summer because it took them weeks to get parts in to fix the air conditioning. Oh, We're back to, again to that building. The resiliency of those buildings is not so great. Right? You go back to the passive house building, right? It's built with low window to wall ratio, good insulation, there's some thermal mass in there. It worked well, but it would work well under the circumstances where the air conditioning fails too, because it keeps the solar energy out. So we're back to Rob, your question, why are we still building? I have no idea because we know the lessons. I spent a fair amount of time trying to talk architects into designing something that looks like my 1950s house. I live in a house in the 1950s. And I've got this nice overhang over the windows. The windows are right sized. And in the winter, I got lots of sunlight streaming in. In the summer, I have good shade from the overhang. Works great. And then a little modern twist, because we're not quite oriented north-south, we're actually rotated so the south, what, what is the south side, faces a little bit east. The back of the house sees sun in the summer. So I actually put thermal windows in the back to prevent sunlight coming in. In the front of the house, I have windows to allow sunlight to come in. At the back, I don't, because I know the only time the sun's at the back is in the summer, and that's yeah. the last time I actually need thermal energy coming in. So I actually, it blew the window contract away. Why do you want these windows there? And those, here's why. Show them just, it didn't even need much of a, a, any mass. It was sort of like, just show them a little picture. And so say, here's where the sun comes in the summer. You got it immediately. But that's just simple, simple design stuff. Just, just thinking through what does this building experience? Yeah, people need to understand that even high performance glass, like in Canada, for example, triple pane, argon filled, you know, fiberglass frame, whatever, the inside surface temperature of that glass can easily hit 100 degrees in the summertime. Well, if you've got, you know, 100% window to wall ratio and the aluminum frames do nothing, you've basically got a radiator that you're trying to cool down. And shade-ins and external blinds, that's step one, right? Yeah, keep the shortwave off the building. But I want to say, though, if you have aluminum frames, they do actually do something useful in the winter if you're thirsty. You can go because there'll be all the conversation on them. If you're a little parched, that's a great place to go. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. Just to get sort of philosophical here. I mean, the sort of principles we're talking about here have been known since Roman times, right? Romans, the best engineers with spears ever. But I think, and this is just my sort of philosophy on it, we're just coming out of a period of super abundant, cheap energy. It made us sort of arrogant where we thought, oh, I don't care about the sun. We'll just build it and we'll put the AC on and it'll be fine, right? And well, I think we're moving out of that period now where it's not acceptable to do that. But the problem is we're still in a period where first cost principles are basically driving every design decision. That means the supply chain drives design. Last few design jobs I got involved in a long time ago, I got so fed up in the end because everyone's in there doing the Kumbaya, we're going to be green. And then as soon as that little Kumbaya song's over, we're all talking about how much everything costs. So I said, look, we can do displacement ventilation and radiant heating and cooling, but every contractor you're going to go to is going to say we can't do it. So if you want it, let's talk about it. But if you want to design for cost, let's phone up the handing unit manufacturer right now. And just all the time. <laughs> you know, everyone's in their own little bloody cocoon. It's all 
Yeah. Say one thing, do another, right? It drives me freaking insane. I couldn't deal with it anymore. I had to get out. It's driving me crazy. It's yeah, like I mean, this, right? In the end, the price of doing a better design, it's not so much on the design side. It's really on the choice of components, right? Yeah. But the total life cycle cost of the component is insignificant compared to the energy that you're going to use and the people who are in there. Yeah. If you can have a life cycle conversation, you've got the possibility of doing something, right? So universities are, have learned lessons about building buildings in the yeah. 80s and the 90s that maybe weren't so great in terms of energy. They've learned their lesson. Yeah. Uh, and we get a lot better building these days at any owner and institution that actually keeps their buildings for a long period of time. Those are the people you've really got to hope target. Because if, like, if you're, I don't know, university and you're running that campus for the next 50, 100 years, right, it matters to you. That's right. right? Yeah. And that's where you can really get value into the conversation. But, you know, if someone's putting up a... The condo block to sell. That's a hard conversation. That's a hard, hard ride. And what's the um, the ratio? There's one to ten to a hundred. Like a dollar in construction costs, ten in operating costs, and a hundred in people costs. Something like that, right? You know. So anytime you can improve the enclosure, or anytime you can improve the indoor environment through the enclosure and the architecture, and get even a small increase in productivity, whatever, two percent. Right. If you take a tall, like I say, a 30-story office tower and get 2% uh, productivity increase, that makes the energy bill look like belly button lint. But people don't think about that in those terms, right? And But we need to. We need the people to understand that. We're starting to see it a little bit more with some businesses are becoming better tenants in their own buildings. They're starting to advocate for themselves, yeah. right? So yeah. I don't know, let's, let's pick a hypothetical example. I'm a big bank. I've got a building full of my employees. I've got my employees trying to write software and set up systems to make my customers happier. If my customers are happier, I make more money. And the only way I can get that to work is if my employees are happy. Well, I'm putting them into a building that's noisy and smelly and puts people to sleep because there's not enough ventilation. I could do that. I could be that kind of bank. Or I could be the kind of bank which excites its employees, got these cool spaces for them to go work in. People like going into the building because they feel like the building is a low-energy building. Which set of employees do you want to have working for you? It's not difficult. So the, the fact that some corporate tenants are becoming more advocating harder for themselves, it gives me a little bit of hope that there's, they actually see the value in making sure their, their team is as efficient and as effective as possible. Yeah. Um, and that's the environment you're in. That tenants and clients that are informed <laughs> is what you want, right? You want someone who understands that building pressurization matters to my energy bill, right? As well as the comfort yeah. of the people. You know, whenever you stand in a hotel in Dubai, and the uh, outlets have got conversation on, you know that building is negatively pressurized, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's probably because the fields haven't been changed in two years. You know, it's not difficult stuff. <laughs> you know I mean? Yep, it, it's not. I, yeah, you and I have stayed in some different hotels across the Middle East. Yeah, there's all sorts of different ways in which that can help. I was, so what we talked about, started this talk about stack effect. I was actually in a, in a hotel in Dubai where the gymnasium was on the top floor. It was summer. Those who haven't been there, you know, temperatures that approach 50 degrees Celsius with a very high humidity level, oppressive is a word that you could use to describe it. And so I'm pounding away on the treadmill at the top of the building. And so remember when we talk about stack effect, inside the building, the air is cooler than outside. So the weight of the air inside the building is now more than outside. Air wants to come in the top of the building. So every time someone goes out to the pool deck from the gymnasium, the door opens, there's this slug of hot air that comes in and wafts over all of the people doing cardiovascular uh, work. And it's kind of like, oh, God, all of a sudden it's just, it becomes oppressive. The door closes and the ventilation system chugs away to try and recover 
and it takes four or five minutes and then sort of it feels better. And that same turkey who just went out to the pool deck disguised that he needs a towel and he comes back in. <laughs> Another slug of cold air. Just brutal. Absolutely true. The reason why I'm laughing is because there's an element in academia that have been promoting this term allesthesia. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but it's basically when you come in, when you're outside and you're hot and, and it's oppressive, and then you go into an air conditioning building, that change in thermal experience yeah. is pleasant. And the word for that is allesthesia. And so okay. there is an element in the world of ASHRAE standard 55 and ISO 7730 that they're trying to. I got to choose my words carefully here. Let's just put the trying to, in, to integrate that into design. Oh, really? In that case, that group of individuals hasn't sat on a treadmill Ex- putting out 13 mats. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what we're trying to, I mean, sometimes when you're, God bless academics. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We need academics and they bring a lot to the table, but Sometimes you just need somebody like Peter Simmons. <laughs> That's where we started. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we started it, right? You know, we're right. smart people that have practical experience because, yeah, you know, the concept of having these thermal delights of the change in temperatures, there is a benefit to that. There is something stimulating about that, but you can't function in that no. for any length of time. Like, it's just not going to happen. And as, as you pointed out, if you're in a high met rate activity, it becomes even worse, right? So, yeah. yeah. Alice, well, I mean, that, that's a whole other talk for maybe that's another podcast because I don't know the number of hotels I've been into where the gymnasium ventilation system has just been abysmal. Yeah. Just not designed for allowing anybody to do any sort of exercise with some sort of heat output. Just terrible. Underventilated, so it's smelly. High humidity levels from people sweating in there, not the right temperature, not the right air movement. I, I could go on. And, you know. Yeah, I think California is the only state that I've been in in a hotel room where they actually tell you that you're in a bad environment. <laughs> like, I remember going in there, getting on the bike, and um, I had my head down, my headphones were on, and I was just, I don't know what my met rate was at, but I was, and then I looked up and there was a sign there warning. <laughs> <laughs> Under California code, whatever it is, just be advised that this room has been constructed with cancer-causing materials. Yeah. <laughs> Breathe deep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. Don't go and lick any of the window frames because we're not sure about them either. Yeah. That's right. All <laughs> WDI have one of the larger concentrations of clever people in their group, right? Uh, well, that's very kind of you. I, I like to think that I might be aspiring into that crowd. Yeah, no, I think I would say with high confidence that this is a true statement. Now, also, I know RWDI are a bit more research-oriented than most engineering firms, let's say. So yep. do you have any sort of rough idea of – now, we've been talking about the downsides of stack effect and building pressurization. Do you know if there's any numbers you could throw out on the energy cost to that? I do. And the trouble with it is that there's an awful large number of assumptions that you have to make. Yeah, I know this is like bullpark um, for everyone listening. And, and so what ends up happening is the energy cost of stack effect is not so massive right. that it's going to drive decisions on its own. However, it's large enough that if you sort of want your building to be passively resilient, right? So the power goes out, the air conditioning goes off, whatever it is. If you want your building to be passively resilient, you absolutely need to take care of stack effect. And some buildings are a lot worse in stack effect than others. So back to, it's not like it's 10, 20% of your energy cost. 
But if you have a failure of your system somewhere, stack effect is going to make you know about it a lot quicker. Yeah. And heighten the consequences, presumably. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, we talked about sort of Dubai, stair shafts in Dubai, if they get too hot, no one's going to be able to escape through that stair shaft when it's 40 degrees because it would come oppressively hot and prevent people from being able to run down the stairs. In North America, in Toronto, Calgary, Chicago, if a stairwell gets too cold, and I've seen this, and the water pipes freeze in there because the air is coming from the parking garage into the stairwell, and the stairwell is where the, the pipes are for the fire suppression system. If the pipes freeze, you've got no water to put out a fire in the building. So stack effect is one of the things that needs to be taken care of because it does have life safety impacts. We just haven't seen a really bad consequence of that yet. Okay. But what I've just described, a stairwell that's too hot or a stairwell that's too cold that causes freezing, that exists. I've seen that. All right. So energy costs are a sort of financial component here. Have you got any examples of super bad consequences from not addressing this? Yeah, super bad. That's a technical term, super bad. <laughs> super bad, yeah. When an engineer says it's super bad, it's like super bad. Yeah, we, yeah that's right. I go into a design meeting. Oh, that's going to be super bad. Um, I'm aware of cases where doors slamming has caused injury. So when a door can slam because of stack effect. And so a way of seeing it is I, I'm on the top of the building and it's winter. So air is coming in the bottom, leaving the top. And as the air leaves the top, I've got a door that wants to open inwards in towards the elevator shaft and the air is going to be trying to push the door closed. That door, if it's not got a closer on it that's going to prevent it, can slam very fast and very hard. Reverse is also true. I've got a, a unit door that leads onto a corridor and I open it into my unit away from the elevator at the top of the building again. That door can all of a sudden surprise you by opening very quickly because the force yeah. on it is mm. hundreds of pounds. It, yes. It's not like it's an insignificant weight. I haven't seen anybody killed directly because of stack effect, but we know that smoke gets transported around a building due to stack effect. Yeah. So there's indirect consequences as well. You know, fortunately, there haven't been any major injuries that I'm aware of because of stack effect, but there are certainly some indirect ones and there's lots of risk. So, so any right now, designing a building should be aware of that door issue. That's a simple one. And yeah. then there's also some irritants associated with stack effect too. Yeah. I mean, the annoyance is like odor transmission, right? Is a classic, right? And but you're right. I mean, these annoyances, any one of them can turn into a catastrophe in the right circumstances. That's right. And heaven help us if we see, you know, on the people that are in the building that that might occur, but it will drive people to consider it and the severity that it is. And people need to pay attention to it. Smoke yeah. management, right? So we're talking about smoke management here. This is a big part where stack effect has an impact, right? You know, if you get this wrong, you, know, you could have people get severely injured through smoke inhalation, right? Or even prevent them from going into a staircase that might save them. So started out earlier on about some codes. So just treat a very tall building as a bunch of shorter buildings. Yes. There's some codes that require you to put vents at the top of an elevator shaft or top of a stair shaft. And the motivation for putting them there is about trying to control pressures in the stairwell and control pressures in the elevator shaft. And sometimes just about controlling temperature. But those vents are a weak point. Because what can happen is you have a vent at the top of a shaft. Let's, let's pick the elevator shaft for a moment. There's a fire on another floor. The vent in the top of the elevator shaft is open. The smoke from that fire-affected floor will want to go into the elevator shaft because that's if the fire is down low, that's what's going to happen. And the smoke just has a direct path outside. So anybody who's in that elevator shaft above the fire floor is actually at risk of, of smoke inhalation. 
So some of these building codes don't work very well for yeah. tall buildings when we're dealing with fire and smoke. Yeah, I'm conscious. I mean, there's been some tragedies recently, particularly in the UK with the Grenfell fire. You know, some of these old 80s and 70s towers that have terrible fire cladding. The other thing that's not being spoken about, these fires are spreading horrendously. Even in Dubai, they've had these problems. Luckily, so far, people have been getting out. But how long before someone doesn't, right? Yeah, and some of those fires have had better reporting in terms of the science and what physically went on than others. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're not. They're a problem that really was unnecessary had someone been looking a little bit more carefully. Yeah, I agree. We're coming up on time. I was going to ask you a question about some sort of out-of-the-box solutions, but no, you've got to go and hire Duncan at RWDI to get some answers on how to fix that. <laughs> Very kind, Adam. <laughs> Duncan's one of the biggest brains in the industry, FYI. Now, what we do want to do, though, we finish up with a couple of quick-fire questions. Yeah, go. Right. So if I was a young graduate, let's say I'm a mechanical engineer, who's the Conor McGregor of mechanical engineers, in your opinion? Sorry, that's a bit of an unfair question. Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. There are some really good design firms that are doing some clever stuff. I think the best way to do it is to find a larger firm that's been around for a while where the name of the guy or the girl who's running it is on the on the name of the sign above the door and they're still working there. Those yeah, are probably working good. name partner. <laughs> <laughs> working that's a good named partner is what you need. Yeah. That's a good answer. So you're working your way through the PhD self-awareness, what drives your passion, what drives your curiosity. Let's just say you're sitting there, you know, at a campfire and there's 10 students around and you're just shooting the shit, drinking beer and whatever. Which of those 10 kids are going to end up being the Duncan Phillips of the world in the next 20 years? What's in their brain that, you know, is going to lead them into the same path that you went into? Curiosity is going to be an important one. So a desire to have some measure of curiosity, but design of a building no one has time to pay you to be curious about every element of the design. <laughs> Curiosity, I mean, well, that's an interesting challenge. Let's, that a problem. Let's go and explore that for a while. We don't have time during building design to explore every little rabbit hole. But be curious about what other people are recommending and why. So learn through that process. So the curiosity is about learning along the way. So you've got to learn. And learning can come from the person who walks in the door on her first day as an engineer. That individual can still teach you something as opposed to the person with the gray hair who's been there 30 years. They're both going to be able to teach you something and don't ever dismiss the junior engineer who's just walked in because they may have a life experience or seen something or have a particular technical background that's going to teach you something. So that's important. I kind of like to, to approach a team of individuals as everybody's got something to contribute. So that's actually really important. So learn from everybody. The second one is find the piece of science and physics that actually really interests you. If you're a chemical engineer and you like things that go boom, okay, explore <laughs> combustion, right? <laughs> if you're an electrical engineer and you, and you like battery technology, go that route. And if you're a fluids person and you get jazzed up about fluid dynamics, buildings are one of the best places to go. And the reason yeah. why buildings are the best place to go is it's so difficult and complicated. Any yeah. idiot design an airplane. Airflow <laughs> around an airplane is easy. And I say that because a wing is designed to allow the airflow to go over in an optimal manner. Yeah. And all we're trying to do is sort of just tweak a little bit more out of it. But a guy who used to work for RWDI, who left to go work on turbo machine, he was actually come back. And one of the things he said after he'd left was that the physics of designing turbo machinery, actually not that difficult, right? You just got to keep refining little, little pieces. But designing a building, you take a big blob and you stick it into a wind flow, and then you try and manage that to keep the forces low enough so you can actually get the building up, that's actually fairly complicated. And then all the stuff we've talked about today, just the airflow inside, 
there's layers and layers of complexity. So quite frankly, if you're a fluids person, buildings are the place to be. Yeah. I'm interesting that airplane stuff. You know, we had uh, Dr. Hema Murdy on, and she is, I will end up in my grave with a smile on my face when I think about her because she's so, her background is actually in aeronautical engineering and aerospace. Yeah. That's her PhDs. And she works on both fixed wing and uh, rotary aircraft. aircraft. Yeah. And her brain has taken her to forensic work. So whenever military helicopters crash or planes, whatever, that's where she ends up on it. And we're talking about COVID and airflow and particle dispersion, and all that kinds of stuff. And that's exactly what she said. She said, you know, when we're designing wings at whatever from Mach 1 or Mach 2, it's easy yeah. shit. Everything's yeah. stable at those high speeds. We know yeah. what works and what doesn't work. Where it gets really tricky is when we're in low flow, low velocity, mixed flow, turbulent laminar. And that's where the problems occur. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you're flying along at 800, 900 kilometers per hour, you don't want the thing to be wobbling. You want that thing to be rock steady. <laughs> and that's what aerodynamics does, rock steady at this speed. But when you're sort of a lot slower and it's wobbly, that one's more exciting. Well, yeah. And she was talking like you could be in a restaurant and you could be have a menu in front of you, right? And as soon as you do this with the menu, you've changed the airflow around you. Yeah. You have a waiter or a waitress that walks by. All of a sudden, you've changed all of these things. And so there's a, so many variables. It becomes a really complex problem. And when these people are doing modeling virus transmissions in a laboratory, yeah, for that set of circumstances, your results are true. But take that into the real world, and all of a sudden, everything falls apart. Yeah. At that point, you have to start working with statistics. What's the probability of this event happening? And what's the range of possible outcomes? Yeah. The range of possible outcomes is really important. So your waiter walking through a restaurant, another way of seeing that is, the high-speed train that passes you by on a platform, the wake at the front of the train is relatively well-organized. It's just a bow wave that's going to push out. As the side of the train passes by, it's a continuous airspeed as it passes by. You get to the back of the train, you will end up having the tail of the train flat backwards and forwards, and that's actually probably the most dangerous part of the wake of the train moving, is because it's so random, you may get whacked as the wake goes one way, and then it's gone the other way, and then it comes back and gets you. Yeah. So that waiter who's walking through a restaurant, you don't have to worry about the sort of wake in front of them. It's the wake behind them that's going to sort of disturb your dinner or, or move yeah. virus from one person's table to another table or cigarette smoke from one area to another area. Yeah. The physics of those kinds of blockages is actually really interesting. It's back to buildings, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. right, because buildings are more uncontrollable variables, right? So many interactions. You'll never get bored. If you love science, again, message for students. Yeah. The building industry, architectural engineering, you'll forever be challenged if you want. Yeah, more interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, Duncan, well, look, that is great. Thank you so much for coming on. And yeah, thanks, Duncan. For everyone, RWI, big brain company for the big brain people. Get over there and get a job if you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Take care, everybody. Have okay, take care. Cheers. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is that painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional, 
and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. Another uh, awesome interview. I think it's a pretty interesting guy, right? He's great. Pretty humble. I, I attended his uh, webinar on Stack Effect, and it was really good. I recommend it to anyone who wants to take it. Yes, it's technical, but it's not. So there's two types of technical teachers, right? Those who sit there and try and explain to you how clever they are using you know, jargon and language, and then those that actually teach you. So Duncan's firmly in that. He is really accessible in how he explains complex subjects. He did a great job considering it was a webinar and he didn't disappoint me because, you know, Stack Effect is something very few people talk about. It's a bit of a stuffy engineering subject, but he is an acknowledged expert on it and he does know what he's doing. There's no question about that in my mind. Yeah, it has major consequences. And then while we were chatting with him and I was thinking about the difference between an annoyance and a consequence and, you know, a big deep breath because it's just a matter of time, right, where we see consequences, catastrophe that might occur because of bad design or not paying attention to the effects of stack effect. And yeah, it's it's a ticking time bomb really in buildings. As much as I don't want to see anyone get hurt, it will fascinate me when it does happen. Like heaven forbid that someone, there's a fire, people get caught, something doesn't work, right? And then there will be a legal battle, right? Someone has to get the bullet in the head and take responsibility for it. So is it going to be the authority having jurisdiction who accepted it? Is it going to be the FM people who didn't maintain it? Is it going to be the designer who didn't design it properly or the constructor who didn't build it? There are four people in the dock. Someone has to get the bullet in the head and pay and go to jail, right? Who's it going to yeah. be? That would be a fascinating legal battle because arguably everybody's guilty in that chain, right? Maybe they all go down. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. When you think about when a plane crashes, right, yeah. which easily has, well, I mean, there's less people on a plane than there is in some of these buildings, yeah. but... You know, a plane crash and the investigation that goes on into it and the consequences from that are huge, you know, but they always learn from it. And, you know, the aviation industry has done a pretty good job of fixing these issues, whether it's technology-based or pilot error or whatever it is, ground error, it can be ground crew error as well. Fuel, for example, right? Yeah. Not fueling a plane right. We haven't seen that in buildings, you know, but the potentials are there. You know, you we've know seen why. more plane crashes than building failures, but in terms of catastrophic failures, but they do happen. And, but if we saw that more, 
You know why the airline industry or aerospace is better at it? Because they do it publicly, right? Mm. The public inquiry, there's independent investigators, right? And so there's obviously a lot of attention because of that, and it's a public forum, and then there is a result announced, good, bad, or indifferent. At least you know how it went, right? And there's a lesson learned that gets taken back into the industry. Unfortunately, the property industry is super opaque when things go wrong, and there's all sorts of side deals and golf days and... <laughs> and handshakes, and you don't, you rarely see that level of inquiry done in a public space. Yeah, I agree. I don't know what the answer is, but only legislation would push that into the public realm, unfortunately. Yeah. I love this answer to my question and yours. Both answers were great. His answer would reminds me of that, I think it was a Teo saying or something like that. And he was somebody that's got a lot of wisdom and no money. (laughs) And that was, is that, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And he was saying like, you know, anybody that crosses your path, young engineer, woman, man, out of school, they all have something to teach. And then don't discount anybody that crosses your world because you can learn from everybody, you know? Yeah. I love that. I wrote down, He's saying, like, for your curiosity, like, curiosity matters because it can lead to mastery, right? Because you need to maintain that curiosity as you go through your career. Yeah, for sure. How can I be better? How can I do this? Why does that happen? Right? Curiosity is a really underappreciated factor, I think, in terms of driving your yourself to excellence and mastery in something. I really like that. And obviously, follow your interest, right? I love that. If you like things that blow up, be careful. I think, yeah, I think, you know, the curiosity thing is a kind of an interesting thing because yeah. I don't think there's ever an end to curiosity. One, yeah. one bit of information takes you to another place and then so on and so forth. Yeah. And you can take it as far as you really want to go. I think like back in my own career, when I sold my business in 2000 or whenever it was, and it was curiosity about why when we designed spaces, the codes and standards, the people still complained. So the question was why? We did everything that we thought we were supposed to be doing right. And yet people still complain. And so that curiosity led me to the studying human physiology and psychology. And I realized, well, that's the problem. We don't teach people, you know, our designers about these human factor designs. And then one thing just led to another, you know, and it was the curiosity that drove the learning. And so it's a really powerful and what do you, is that a characteristic? Is that a personal character? What is that? Is that a- I think that's an internal factor. So it's a personal trait, right? So some people are just not curious, right? They're happy to like, my dad would call it blinkered thinking, right? You're just looking forward. You're never looking around you. And if that's how you are, that's great. If you're like that and then you get to 50 and you're upset, you're not doing anything creative, you know, don't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting too, right? Because it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, yeah. you get to the top self-actualization. Within that is curiosity, but I think curiosity also drives you up. Well, there's intellectual curiosity and curiosity in general. I think you need both to really drive yourself to excellence and mastery in something. It's an algebra of brain power plus interest plus curiosity. It leads you to mastery, but it's not a short journey. It's a long journey, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about like Peter Simmons, who's sort of in semi-retirement now. Now he's a master of his domain, his realm. He commands the domain he operates in. But that was a long journey, right? Of education and degrees and research and projects. But yeah. he drove through that to get where he is, right? To be one of yeah. the engineers in the world, probably, in my opinion. You know, if I was young, starting out now, I'd model myself on Peter Simmons. That guy is as clever as a guy with three heads, right? <laughs> and has delivered projects like yeah. no one's business, right? 
Well, like, you know, I, t- I talked about academia and academics in the interview and, uh, you know, in many ways, the curiosity that they have got them to that place, the professors and the researchers and, and then the teaching. And as you know, and any teacher knows, is that a lot of the knowledge that you gain is actually gained by teaching somebody who challenges you in your knowledge. That's Feynman theory, right? If you yeah. don't teach it, you don't know it. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of professors that are in the world of academia the good ones. One thing about like people like Ed Aaron's interesting guy, but he's been challenged as has Bill Bonfliff. Like Bill, I mean, with the difference between Bill and other ones is that he's actually worked in the world of engineering. Yeah, he's a practice. Ed worked in the architectural field, but academic, right? He's a Venn diagram. He's a walking. He is a Venn diagram. Yeah, and we've actually had a number of people that yeah. are have academic backgrounds or are still in academia, but they have also had some practical experience, and they are smart people. Actually, when you think about it, right? I look back over all the people we've interviewed. The ones that have really crossed disciplines had now. Typically, we're speaking to people who've had longer careers, right? But who've traversed different disciplines as part of their career and then bring that together. Because then you're getting out of your little silo, right? You're getting out of your channel thinking. You know, like take Bill, right? You know, architectural engineer, engineer, academic. You push that together, you got quite a, an effective worldview there, right? To deal with. Yeah. And Marcel is the same way, Harmon, right? He's his ability to take architecture and anthropology, you know, yeah. to understand society, civilization, and where that fits into the bigger, like, that's an interesting brain to have, right? So when we first interviewed him, I thought, anthropology, get out of here. But at the end of it, I was all in, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Because yeah. that's a lateral thought, right? That's a lateral connection that you can bring in, like both flick designers, no one, bring that in, right? Yeah. What's cool about it? So, like, I mean, the solutions, the science solutions exist. Yeah. The math and the physics and the thermodynamics, he, like, he has a grasp of that. But in order for society and civilization to jump on board that sail ship, the science sail ship, you have to understand culture and you have to understand how people think and how they can be influenced. And my God, it's a huge science, but he understands that. Yeah, so that's, that's just, just a takeaway, right? If you're young in or, yeah, or undergraduate or early in your career, yes, you need mastery in your chosen subject, but you've also got to have knowledge of adjacent subjects mm. to be really effective, right? You can't just be that one trick pony who can size electrical cables like a boss. <laughs> <laughs> that is okay, but it's not enough. You know, when you started to describe to me years ago when we started the podcast, you know, the ethos of the edifice complex was adjacent fields of study. Yes. It's proven true through everybody that we've had on, you know, yeah. especially the high achievers, like these guys and girls, you know, come at it from a whole bunch of different places. So when you interview people like Duncan and Peter Simmons, and all, uh, most people interview, I always feel a bit shabby because they've done this, that, and the other. I think, oh, bloody <laughs> and well, you have to have a pretty strong ego and confidence to talk to these people because I am in awe. I mean, I yeah. look through the people that we've interviewed and I just, my God, like you just... Yeah, the trajectories that these people were on, and some of them, you know, had the little zigs and zags here and there, but to get to where they were at the top of their fields and recognized for their work and the contributions that they've made, it's huge. It's yeah. big stuff. But there's the one thing you should all take away from this is like the built environment or engineering in general is a massive field, and there is something in there somewhere for you. You will have a great career and an interesting intellectual life. 
if you go down this rabbit hole, right? There is something in there for you, I promise. Right? And if you like things that blow up, become a chemical engineer. I love that. That could be a, that's a, that's a T-shirt, right? Yeah, totally. Well, he, you know, when you asked him this question, he said, well, look, try to find a job where the partnership, those letters on the door, yeah. right? You, that, that person is still there working. Name partner who's at his desk working. That's the dude or girl. You know, <laughs> that's why you say, like, just mental me. Yeah, well, that's like when you're buying stocks in a company, yeah. you know, and you're looking at shareholders and if the people that are operating the business are also the biggest shareholders. Yeah. That says something. Yeah, you know? yeah they're engaged, man. They got some skin in the game. They got some skin in the game, absolutely. And and if you can't find a job working for those firms, we'll still get a job, but don't stop looking for those individuals that can mentor you, you know? The biggest break you can get as a young graduate is getting the right mentor who can just like take yeah, hands you down, absolutely bring you out because yeah. you need that. Believe me, when you graduate from university, I can promise you, your worth actually to the business you're going to join is very low. Yeah, and it's the person that takes you under their wing and makes you a project for a couple of years. That person's giving you <laughs> as much value as that four year degree, in my opinion. But anyway, that's just me. I got lucky, I had a mentor who's all. Beasted me, but sort of like invested in me a bit, and it was great. It changed my life, really. Yeah, I've had great mentors in my entire career, and uh, I don't even know if we've talked about this. Maybe offline we have, you know, where you come across somebody that has a vested interest to you, but they're also someone who's willing to pull you aside and hit you with a two by four and say, you need- "Look at dude, smarten up! Like you're being a dickhead." <laughs> yeah, you need to have someone just to say, "Look, just before we go out on stage." <laughs> <laughs> Totally. Right. And I, and I think back, like, you know, I don't know, five times or six times defining moments, you know, where somebody that was wiser, older, you know, had to give me an attitude check, but I've also had, you know, young people also give me an attitude check. And those, those should always be taken with value because if they didn't care, they wouldn't say anything. If they were indifferent, they would just walk away and say, yeah, right, whatever. Right. But the ones that care, you know, we'll pull you aside and like, slap you around and say, smarten up. That's you where know? you find out who you are, right? Because if you can handle that with yeah. being grace and take something away, then you're doing something right, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Admitting that you're wrong or admitting that you needed that lesson is far more valuable. Forget your ego, forget your pride, forget the tears because no one's going to no care whether you cry. No Sit there can. and put on your big girl panties and your big boy underwear and just listen to what the person is saying because there's a huge value. There's a huge lesson coming <laughs> and it's probably because you needed it and they've taken the time to let you know one way or another. Absolutely. Okay, man. So if we're finishing on humility and grace, that's a good place. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, always a joy, man. Okay, man. See you next time. Cheers. See you. Bye. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.